Hey guys, welcome to the show. My guest today is The Naked and Famous. They're celebrating not just the release of their new album, Recover, but also the 10th anniversary of their debut album, Passive Me, Aggressive You, which contained the huge singles, Young Blood and Punching in a Dream. It was really fun to talk with Elisa and Tom about the legacy and the success of Young Blood and what it means 10 years later, and also the new direction their music is taking. So here it is, episode 36 with The Naked and Famous. So first, let's talk about the new album, Recover. This is the first album you guys have made as a duo, correct? We actually started out as a duo, and we actually released two EPs as a duo. Um, And then we got some live band members for the first, second, and third record. We made a fourth record, which was like our best of, but like stripped back songs. That was just Tom and I in the studio. And with some uh, additional help um, from Lunar Shadows. So yes and no. (laughs) So it's it's the first album in this new version of the duo, the the more recent version of the duo. The recording of this, was it kind of like going back home, going to the original form? Or did it feel like something completely new and different? Both. It's both. I mean, we, uh, up until this point... uh, we never really had a lot of collaborators and co-writers and co-producers and Tom and I really needed that to evolve sonically and creatively. So um, it was new because we had co-writers and a co-writers and a co-producer called Simon Oscroft come on board and that really helped revive our creative process and strengthened our skill set and helped us grow and evolve as songwriters. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds great. I, I really, I think it's really satisfying when a band, three, four, five albums in, sounds like the band. You don't, you're not doing heavy metal. You're not doing straight EDM or something. It sounds like a naked and famous album. You lost two band members in 2018, and then you lost another. You lost your bass player more recently. So, how much of this album? was in the works while the band was still a four or five piece band the band so basically none of it uh, so this is all fresh with just you two pretty much i mean there's one song on the record that is a really old one but it just stayed as a demo that no one was really involved with so so yeah um it's basically all new music there's a few things that were kicking around with uh, when David was still in the band, but yeah, we were uh, like you said. I mean, it still feels like the Naked and Famous, mm-hmm. and that I think just comes down to the fact that the the core of what we do hasn't changed at all. We've just added some different tools, and the band that we had used to be the tool that I used to produce the records, and now instead of the band, I, we've just taken those limitations away. Although we have. 10 years plus of uh, having played in a band. So all those creative points that I might have turned to, they're still there, they're just in my head, you know. So I've, I've Nothing's changed as far as who's writing the drum parts. I'm just not relying on uh, one particular person to play that drum part. I could just find a sample and do it myself or, you know, create a, 
a strange hybrid kit out of like half samples and half live stuff. So, so yeah, in some ways it's just business as usual. Um, and you know, I'm still executively producing everything. So I'm still the filter that everything that we do goes through. Um, and that's, that's why it doesn't sound like, uh, someone else has taken the reins for us and, and why every song feels connected. Um, it's just cause I'm still, I'm still doing what I've always done for the band, but like Elisa said, where we just, we just added some more elements in this tent this time uh, to keep it interesting. And I might be a little bit more annoying because now that I've been in this band for 10 years, I'm like, I think you should change that drum sound, John. That synth sound isn't right. Here's my reference. Can you make it like that? Um, yeah. So, yeah. I think <laughs> what, we, what we do and what we have done for this record, honestly, is very, I want to say it's kind of common. Like, we're, we're not doing anything out of the ordinary that other groups aren't doing. I just, the big change for us internally is really just, we used to be a very, very traditional band in that, you know, we didn't have any outside influences, not even the label, like even, even our like major label, you know, peeps, they didn't really know how to like encourage us to do anything or like talk to us about creative differences. We were just yeah. very closed off. And I also think maybe, maybe it was a cultural thing as well, just being Kiwis, like we didn't have the frame of reference to know how to reach outside of our bubble you're very very protective with our our, pro our process for a very long time um until we wrote uh recover this recover it, it, first of all it's i i the songwriting's great the sounds are great i really love it's still got that i love one of the hallmarks of the naked and famous is the percussion you've got that you've still got that driving beat you still got that great percussion and the songs themselves are very soaring for lack of a better term. They feel like walking down the, like running into the sunset with my arms stretched out when I listen to this. Um, so tell me about the sound you wanted to produce with this album. Did you come in with a sound you wanted to, a specific sound you wanted to make or did the songs kind of gel together organically? Well, first of all, we were struggling with our creative process um, for on and off for a few years and it wasn't until uh, we reco recover that we found our like our stride and how we worked and and also working with the co-producer for Tom you know the two of them had to figure out their rhythm and so we would spend a portion of the day uh, just just mapping out a demo on Simon's laptop using logic and then Simon would give that to Tom and he would put it into Pro Tools and then we would start working on vocals and lyrics and so it kind of like just bounced between the two of them um, and we used a lot of organic sounds and then took it into the box and then we would just do that for every single song that we did. Tom, how was it working with the co-producer? Did you guys get along well? Did you find so Yeah, yeah. The, the person uh, Lisa's referring to is an old friend of mine from childhood. So, yeah, we're fine. <laughs> but also, also that we, was like... we didn't work with anyone. Like, we, we sort of, we're sort of doing two things at once here. We're doing this big spiel about, like, you know, working with other people. But at the same time, we worked with, like, three other people, you know? Like, yeah. it wasn't... It's more that... It's more that for Elisa and I to do that we had to figure out the right way to do it. And so we, we're, we're missing a bit of backstory in this explanation, which is that we did try some speed dating, uh, trying to work with different people. 
other co-writers. Um, the, you know, Los Angeles is a place where you can go and basically meet a new person every single day and have a songwriting session. And people, some people do that. Some people are just on what, like the writer's circuit, you know, they're just going from session to session to session every day, waking up, meeting a new person and then trying to write a song, either for pitch to pop artists or maybe they're writing for artists that they work with frequently. Anyway, so Alisa and I have this like wealth of potential, you know, injury that we can tap into, but we, it doesn't always work for, for groups like us because we are artists ourselves. We have quite a big um, say in what we do, you know, um, and a bit, you know, we're very concerned with every little detail about what we're doing. So for us, we need to find people that we really can work with who understand where the boundaries are, who are happy to um, work the way we want to work. So yeah, Simon was, Simon is an old friend of mine and we get along so superbly well. And uh, yeah, it was, it was easy. He, he really understood and intuited where the where the boundaries were and um, how the sort of hierarchy works with us. And same with the co-writers we worked with as well. They, they were all a breeze. So there was no difficulty there. Honestly, the real difficulty is, is I think, between Elisa and I because, you know, two bosses, two CEOs. Yeah. So that's where, that, if anywhere, that's where it slows down the most is between the two of us, not between um, collaborators. Elisa, what did you want to do with this album vocally? in term, Not just in terms of the lyrics, but the sounds that your vocal that your vocals make. You have some really great, but subtle effects on your voice. What what did you want to do with this album that you haven't done before? Well, the thing that I kept saying to myself was, everything doesn't have to be an anthem. That's predominantly what we're known for predominantly what I'm known for as a vocalist and like I'm more than happy to go there but it can feel tiresome when that is what is expected of you every single time I go into the studio so I really wanted to explore a different sides of my vocal that I haven't really had a chance to and it's been really rewarding um, to do that so I've been able to sing in like hushed, gentle tones and I'm, and that was like a challenge for me because I'm so used to just singing it out. Um, so having to learn where to restrain my vocal was so challenging in such a rewarding way. Um, and then when I needed to reach higher, I could. So that was something new for me. And also with the production, um, you don't hear a lot of like bombastic guitars and and I th that was kind of that, that was intentional you know um, I wanted us to be able to explore different guitar tones on this record it was actually more about I mean I think the guitar is definitely something I go to right so I was sitting down and I'll just pick up a guitar and start I can I can just spend an entire day trialing guitar ideas till I have no idea which one of them is good or if they're all terrible. So what was important for this album was actually to sort of not repeat that and to put the guitar down and for it to be the last thing that I picked up to try and find, you know, it was like the, the icing on the cake. It wasn't the, the, the bulk of the meal. That process was fun for me as well because I think because I'm a guitar player, um, I can just be so immensely critical about it and also unconfident about it like 
I don't feel that there are many limitations to what I can do with the guitar, which is kind of like looking at a menu with a hundred options on it. Like it's overwhelming and it's difficult to make a choice. It's better to have just three things, you know, to pick from. Um, so yeah, this approach was really helpful for me in that respect. One one of the songs that's on here is a song you wrote a while back with the late Scott Hutchison. Tell me about that song. Yeah. So that was, that was actually me. I was, I was, that's when I was referring to before. Um, it's an old, an old demo going back many years. And, uh, in 2014, when we came off the road for Enrolling Waves, um, when that album tour ended, we all came back to LA and I was having a very difficult time and I was struggling with um, a lot of depression and, um, anxiety and I wasn't very, uh, mentally healthy. And our band with, you know, the band was all sort of taking a break from one another. And Scott had recently moved to LA and him and I had become sort of acquaintances on the road. Him and Lisa and I actually had a good night hanging out in Scotland, which was like a big highlight of just our career in general. Anyway, so um, yeah, I got some time, I got to spend some time with Scott here in LA um, who, and he's one of my heroes. Uh, it was a Frightened Rabbit were a big influence on the band. We loved Frightened Rabbit when we were recording Passive Me Aggressive You. So yeah. And I showed him the song. He helped me finish off a few lyrics in the verses. And uh, it was just, I don't know, it was just a really special experience getting to write with one of your heroes. Because, um, you know, you get you get opportunities to meet your heroes if you become successful in a band. And they're not always the people you, you know, want them to be or imagine they'll be. Or you don't always click, you know. There's not always chemistry. But Scott and I got along really, really well. And, uh, yeah, he was just a friend to me in a time where I really needed a friend. Um, and then I showed, when we were sort of into making Recover, I showed this song to Elisa and she knew about it. She, she'd heard it a bunch of times and I was like, look, I think we should finish this track. Um, and this is after, after Scott had died. I was just like, look, it's just such an important thing to me. It means so much to me. It's like, it's, it's weird. It's like a photograph that hadn't been developed yet. Um, and so I wanted to turn it into something for the album. And then Elisa's part was missing from the original demo. And it was really important on us with Recover to have some light at the end of the tunnel. And for our really serious messages, like, you know, this is a song about, you know, suicidal ideation and feeling feeling like you're at the end. Um, and Elisa's part is the, it is the light at the end of that tunnel. And she is the, the message of hope in that song. Pulling, it's supposed to pull you out of the negative headspace that my vocal part really enforces and sets up. Um, so yeah, it, it, when, when we wrote that, when we got Elisa's vocal into the track, um, it just, it, it made sense and it, I really wanted to put it on the album and I'm, I'm really stoked to have it out. And it's a touchy one as well because, you know, Scott died a couple of years ago. I reached out to his brother and his management just to check that they were okay with it and they were. So um, yeah, super, super meaningful song it's a really great artifact to have on the album it's kind of carried from yeah. from the demo version on through that's it's great you, you you talked about you guys living in la now at this point how long have you been in la uh since 2012 so, so it it feels like home now right yeah, yeah. It, did, it does definitely does it didn't at first took a long time because we were kind of like just coming in and in and out of LA for a good three, two or three years, just from touring, 
Um, and we both didn't really settle down until maybe like the last four years. Yeah. Yeah. So what 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 is that atmosphere? You mentioned, uh, Tom, you mentioned that there's all these roving songwriters and chances to collaborate. So how do you think that's affected your creative process being in uh, L.A. versus being in New Zealand? Well, very significantly in New Zealand. Um, and this kind of ties back to one of your previous questions you were asking about, like how we put together our songs and how we reach out to other people. I think because New Zealand's a small country and the in industry isn't big, you know, um, it, it requires a lot of like support to keep to keep afloat. So the government of New Zealand, you know, they have all these music grants for artists, you know, for albums, for music videos, you name it, you can get support to keep it alive, which is wonderful because it's it's valuing something on its own merits. You know, it's not about the financial return. It's about creating art for art's sake, creating culture and, and, and creating things just to create them, which is fantastic, you know, um, which is very different because obviously America is like all about, um, you know, the industry here is, is winner takes all. So, so, so there, there is a lot of support in New Zealand, but the industry is not very big. So there aren't all these opportunities to get a lot of collaboration and do a lot of that sort of yeah, the, you know the trial and error the network the network is very small whereas the network here is so expansive yeah. and a lot of people come to LA from all different countries to write music to produce music to work with other artists and um, there's just more of a like a writing collaborative culture here in, in music so we were very protective when we first started about like about working with other people. We didn't know how to work with other people. We were also very undisciplined. You know, like the way we put songs together was particular and specific to us. We didn't have any sort of comparison or any like peers to, to, to you know, work on that with or, or to exchange ideas with. We were very much just doing our own thing our own way. And as far as we understood, that's just kind of how everybody worked. You know, you, you got successful doing your thing, so you keep doing your thing. But then, yeah, we were exposed to what uh, a place like Los Angeles has to offer. And it's a lot. There's a lot to offer. But the interesting thing about it is that some people get swept up in the kind of excitement and the romance of a place like L.A. And it doesn't necessarily work in every situation and circumstance. So I think for Elisa and I, we learn the hard lesson that a lot of, like, artists like actual artists learn about this industry is that you need to kind of take away the bits that you need from it but you don't need to take away everything you know not everything about LA is great like there are some people who like I was saying before go and do the sort of song a day thing which can just be sort of creatively and emotionally and socially exhausting and you're kind of you're not stock, you're not stocking up on any creative energy that you need to release. You're just trying to get through a new song every day. Um, and I think it can tire people out. And I also think it can start to feel like you're trying to create songs to a brief or you're like working for an ad agency or something. Right. You're not like, it feels like an assembly line almost. Yeah, you're not like fostering your you know, there's something about being an artist and being creative where you get bored of life and you have to make something. Yeah, you know, you have this idea and you just really want to get it out there. So you have you have this burning desire to kind of like release this idea. And I think if you're in that conveyor belt sort of routine, that goes away because you're always putting stuff out. So you don't feel that 
burning buildup. It just sort of like drains you and it drains you, you get depleted and you're just a bit dead behind the eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it just can wear people down. They can become sort of like a bit it's like anything, you know, yeah. uh, you need to you need to balance it out and it's all moderation. Yeah. It's all moderation. Like I actually I really enjoy jumping in a room um, to write songs with other artists for other artists that just because song I enjoy songwriting so for all the purposes of just writing a good song like I'm I'm there I'm down for the challenge I will be with you in a room for like six to seven hours just like hanging and, and getting something out um, so I, I really do enjoy playing that support role and helping somebody organize their thoughts to see through their vision um, it's an amazing experience. And that, that's really, that is really rewarding and, and you can learn so much in the process and, and actually grow and strengthen your skill set from being in those kinds of situations. Yeah, like you take a lot away from them, I think. Like you, you, you learn a lot from those situations, which is wonderful. Like there's nothing better than having a good session and being like, yeah. oh, I learned this thing about songwriting today or I, I had this process and you just bring it into your next session. It's great. But I think some people do that all the time and they're fine with just like new 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 people all the time but for like artists like Elisa and I we really do for like the band need to work with someone that we trust that we know that we have like there isn't this awkwardness we don't like spend five hours just getting to know them we like know them very well we have a good repertoire and you know the, a good sense of shared humor and interests or, so if, we, or if we do meet someone who's, who's brand new who's coming into the room with us like at the very least, they have an understanding of like who we are, where we've been. They understand our dynamic and how yeah. we work, and you know. Um, so coming into the room with us is 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 easy with with all that knowledge um, mm. prior. Now, in addition to promoting the release of the new album, you're also kind of going. You're you're also celebrating the tenth anniversary of Passive Me Aggressive You and the success of Young Blood. Looking back 10 years since that's happened, and I know that that album really hit in 2011, but it was released in 2010. How do you view that time period? And how do you feel about the songs on that album, specifically the, the two biggest hits, uh, Young Blood and Punching in a Dream? How do you, how do you feel about the, that time period? Very nostalgic. Yeah, really nostalgic. And Are you proud of those songs? Oh, yeah. Very proud. That, that record, Young Blood, those songs changed our lives. So it truly changed our lives. Like we've had the luck and opportunity to know the um, to know how our lives change with a hit. You know, that's something that not every artist, not every band experiences, and and we're lucky that we we have one of those, and um, we've been able to sustain sustain a career for the span of a decade. It was always. Our, our main goals when we first started the band was to quit our day jobs, to do music full time, to create bodies of work and to sustain an international career. And I feel like we've been able to achieve those four things and everything else is just a bonus at this point. Absolutely. Now, Youngblood is just ubiquitous. It was in so many television shows and commercials and that opening do 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 um, that's my impersonation of that that opening riff great yeah, where, yeah was that was that spot on yeah it's yeah. perfect where where did that riff 
come from? Did you build a song around that riff or did you have the rest of the song, the idea for the lyrics and stuff, and then you fit the riff in later? The way that song is put together is a great example of how The Naked and Famous works as a band. Aside from aside from the fact that this was started with Elisa on the keys, like she sat down on a synthesizer that we had in, in our bedroom and she played the kind of a version of the lead line just like you just did yeah. just then and um i heard it and i was like well do that again do that again quick and so i hit record and i recorded in this keys part and then i found i built that synthesizer right built this keys line and then started building a band around that keys line so keys line came first then the track was built and i just to was do it that keys and drums no no it was keys and then the chords um, and I just leaned on my wealth of like band knowledge to do that. So that, that, that honestly, the whole song came out in like, I want to say it was like an hour or two of writing and the whole track was done. And so it was like keys first, then the bass and the guitar part with the drums kind of all at once, then threw some pads down a couple of synthesizers and bam, that was the, that was the song. And then I gave this track this like, you know, band demo to Elisa. I was like, look what I did with this keyboard line that you you were playing around with. And she, it was either the next day or later that day or something, went and sat in the lounge and wrote all the lyrics and melodies for it, um, except for one line in the chorus. Wait, and then, and then like, she left the bridge empty as well. And she was like, what should I put in this chorus line here? And I was like, I don't know, just like, sing like, yeah, 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 or something, like, it's fine. Like, just, just big yes, like, who cares? We don't need a final line, it's fine, it's good. So then we put the yeah, yeah, yeahs down and uh, and then filled in the blanks in the bridge. I was like, oh, I'll do a vocal part in the bridge, which was like a happy accident because it sort of, it, it had this dual personality going on, you know, like it was Elisa's voice and then my voice and they're very separate and very distinct and different. So like the, the, the kind of like haphazardness of us putting that song together was also how we figured out who we were going to be. Um, and it's, it was all very, very clueless, very like non-intentional, very organic, very like subconscious and not really I, <laughs> planned very well. I also had a really insecure moment when I was showing Tom my ideas because as I was singing him the melodies, I was just like, we're only young and naive still. And he's like, hmm. He's like, sing that louder. He's like, no, just really go for it. I'm like, uh, I sound stupid. Are you sure? She was like. And then he's like, okay, yeah. Oh, he's like, that sounds amazing. Okay, then how about you sing? yeah 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 just like sing it really loud i'm like no i feel so stupid why are you making me do this and it was it worked <laughs> so now every time i have a moment where i'm like oh, do i sound stupid is this stupid i'm like no that's usually a good sign <laughs> did you guys know what you had instantly no yeah. we just knew that we wrote a bomb song yeah that's it <laughs> no we were we stoked on the stoked on it and it felt special but it, we didn't quite know how big it was until we properly recorded it so it just sat around as like a, a really kind of crummy sounding demo for a few months and then we went to the studio and recorded it with the band we spent some time rehearsing it with the with the band we played a few local gigs we played the song to like you know 10 people yeah, the first um, time Youngblood was to 10 people. Just like 10 people in some empty bar. And then, and then, so by the time we went into the studio to record it, we really kind of had 
we knew what we were doing basically we weren't sitting around in the studio like twiddling our fingers trying to figure out how it was going to sound like we knew how it was going to sound and then we just re-recorded all those parts that i'd put down in the demo well half of them you know some of them we just kept they're just like the sounds they were in the demo and yeah then it was done as soon as it was, as it was mixed and it came back to us we were like whoa this sounds huge and we were quite excited at that point but to to what extent it was going to you know change our lives we had no idea and it, when it came out in New Zealand, it went straight to number one in like the entire national sort of like radio charts, which was, you know, a freak accident thing. And that was like, that was that at that point, that was when we knew stuff was like changing for us. It went to number one. Everyone was freaking out. Like we were like an overnight success with the song. And then it was like, oh, okay, maybe we can quit our day jobs now. There's two types of hits, right? There's the hit that is big on radio and, you know, charts, that kind of thing. And then there's the hit that, like, becomes part of the culture. And that's what Youngblood is. At what point did it go from a big hit in New Zealand and and the UK and, and the modern rock charts here in America to this is in TV shows? Tell me about the licensing and the placement of this song around the culture. It's almost as if like Young Blood, when Young Blood was released, it just grew legs and it just decided to just have a life off. of its own. Yeah, yeah, it just you know, left home. There was no knowing who it would reach, where it would be going. It's yeah. just going on its own little global adventure, making its way into our favorite TV shows yeah. and advertisements. And that's the thing with like a, with and that. then just when you thought, just when we thought like, oh, that song's lifespan has like come to its end it pops up somewhere else yeah and we're like whoa what how is this happening um yeah it's 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 crazy how young blood has had that power i'm really glad you guys are still into the song because there's this kind of push and pull when a, when a band has a really big hit that they might get sick of it, but at the same time, you're the one who made a really great song, so you're going to have to play it for the rest of your life. Are you guys cool with playing this and it being your kind of your signature song for the next yeah, 30 or 40 months? Yeah, I, you no, know, to, no issues. To be honest, I don't know that I understand that mentality. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I think it's a really interesting question in music and in art in general because, I mean, it's the it's the it's the Radiohead response, right? And I've seen you know things about Tom York quotes of him saying you know that like their attitudes towards creep, or it's the you know it's Kurt Cobain's response to Smells Like Teen Spirit. Again, I feel like those songs like that, you know, they are they have this time and a place. They take you right to the era that they came out in. They say everything about it. You know, they, they, they just paint a picture. And I don't understand that kind of snobbery or the nose in the air thing because it sounds to me, and I'm not trying to sort of like have a go at these people or, or, or instigate with them, but I, I do feel like it starts to sound like, um, what's the psychological phenomenon? Sour, uh, sorry, sour lemons. Oh, no, sweet lemons or no sour grapes. Sour grapes, there you, you go. Know, yeah, sour grapes. Um, it, it it's almost it sounds it starts to look like a defensive reaction to one's own inability to understand what one did, you know. And I I can happily admit that with young blood, it was an accident. We didn't know what we were doing. It was a happy happy accident. If I could do it again, I would. <laughs> I would have done it like for every other song that I've released. But it's difficult. 
it's not something we did with any conscious intention. It was really one of those things where it just kind of like it was there in the universe and we were just lucky to pull it out of the air. And um, yeah, I think also maybe that defensiveness comes from not knowing what to do with the praise that comes along with that or not knowing how to take responsibility or not take responsibility for it. I don't know. It's, it's just weird. It's a very strange reaction and it's also ex extremely ungrateful. And I think the kind of lack of gratitude is a little bit silly and ill-considered and poorly considered because, you know, life is just luck. You know, yeah. life is purely luck. We didn't, we don't choose where we're born. We don't choose the circumstances in which we find ourselves for the most part. You know, uh, life is very much luck for all of us. And uh, if you've done something that's resonated with your culture or with a bunch of people and has brought them joy, um, it seems in bad, it seems like it's in bad spirits and you're being a bad sport to be a snob about it. But I'm, ha look, I, I'm happy to be pushed back from that. Like I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear a convincing argument against that. You know, I would like to hear, I'd like to be talked out of my position of thinking that that's the wrong attitude. I think but it's, I, I, I think haven't it'll... heard a convincing, I haven't heard a convincing argument yet that hasn't just seemed like kind of childish. I think it's a little bit easier for you guys because it's not like young blood was ice ice baby or something where it was like your only <laughs> song or like, I wish it was. <laughs> oh yeah. Or like, or like the pina colada song. Right. Like, like you have a body of work. The, the album itself as a whole had other songs on it that also were successful. And I would imagine you, you come from New Zealand, this small country. And once you have a song that's internationally known, like you must be, really hot shit in New Zealand now. Uh, no one cares. New Zealand doesn't <laughs> care about like celebrityism or like that culture. Like we just don't care, you know? Yeah. It's, there's you... just, yeah, it's just not a big deal. Elisa, you were the daughter of immigrants, of Laotian immigrants. Yeah. Growing up, I'm always interested, uh, children of immigrants, the balance of, Laotian culture and New Zealand culture, where did your family, you know, lie in that balance? Did you grow up, did you have very progressive parents or were they more traditional parents? Very, very, very traditional. Oh my God, so traditional. Yeah, it's, you know, my dad really, really valued education. He really valued getting an education going to university, don't get distracted by boys, go home, do your homework, be a good student, um, get good grades. It's such a typical Asian story, but I understand why he's saying that because Laos is a third world country and he was able to attain status because he was an educated man. He was studying um, medicine to be a doctor, he was going to medical school, um, and so it was a very important thing that I got an education and and then uh, you know he was like when I would show an interest in music and singing like it was never really encouraged but um, I grew up in a household that played a lot of Lao music my dad was in a Lao community band so there was a small community of Lao people who immigrated to New Zealand and um, they would rehearse. There was a um, a Buddhist. My my parents were Buddhist, 
and they would go there and there was a room that they would use to rehearse. So I grew up around like my dad and his friends playing loud music and they would play at events and didn't speak English at home until I had to go to school and I had to learn English properly. But I spent a lot of my teenage years really just rejecting my heritage because I wanted to fit in and I wanted I was so fascinated by western culture and music and dance and fashion and makeup and it is it, it wasn't until my late 20s early 30s where I was like actually like I should embrace where I come from I should find out more about where I come from and I've just become more and more interested in my heritage and where my dad grew up and how he met my mom and like his struggles with the language barriers and the cultural differences and and he would talk about how a lot of the food that they grew up making they couldn't find those ingredients in New Zealand back in the 80s and, and they really struggled and um, stories about like my dad going to a supermarket for the first time and he didn't understand how it worked and so he would just go up to one of the uh, checkout people working checkout and be like um, how much food can I get for ten dollars <laughs> he would ask this question so there are just so many funny moments with my family just trying to assimilate to culture in New Zealand but we were really lucky our family I was born in New Zealand and, and our family got uh, there was a woman, her name's Anthea Delegate, and she was a volunteer at the refugee resettlement camps when my parents arrived in New Zealand and with my um, older brother and sister. And she really helped them understand, like, okay, if you want to get a job, you have to fill out a form. This is how you enroll your, your children into school. This is where they get their school uniforms. This is how you pay your bills. So, yeah, she was a very integral part of um, me growing up. But... Yeah, I don't really get asked that question a lot, so I kind of just went on a big rant about no, it. No, I find um, it interesting. Yeah. I love stories. I think that's one of the best parts of a podcast is getting to hear the background of something. After the success of, of your first album and Youngblood, did you feel pressure to make something just as great? Yes. Or, yeah, tell me about making, Enrolling Waves was the, the follow-up um, to that. So tell me about putting that together and how you approach that album. Oddly, we were fairly protected because we'd done the first album entirely on our own with no influence really from, you know, we had no labels breathing down our necks or anything like that, no A&R really. It was just us and our management at the time making the record in New Zealand. I produced it and uh, did really, really well. So... None of the labels that we were with had any kind of grand scheme for us or anything like that. You know, they knew that we were going to make another record, so we just started making it. And the unfortunate thing, looking back now, and the part that I regret is that I, I kind of wish they had been a little more nosy and tried to not help, but... Infiltrate, give, infiltrate, infiltrate the process. Because... I think that I was concerned with things that was, just, you know, like I, I again, I produced the, the second album as well in Rolling Waves. And I think my concerns for it, while they were like motivating for me personally, I don't know if they translated to the real world. Some of the things, some of the goals I'd set out to achieve, we did achieve. So, 
for example, on the first album, we get you know all the reviews were like synth pop band. We kept getting called a synth pop band, and I, I was just you're you like know, I'm a guitarist, I, damn it. Yeah, yeah. I was flattered to be you know reviewed anywhere. I was I was absolutely over the moon. But a goal of mine became well, I'd like us to be seen as a real serious rock band, not like a synth pop act. It wasn't necessarily that we were like, we just weren't seen as like a band band, you know? And I wanted that. So the second record was very organic. We rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed it. So by the time we got into the studio, like every part we were playing, the whole record we could perform live, you know? So there was a limitation on the amount of like instruments and vocals and things that we could track for it. It was supposed to be a record that was like old fashioned. You know, we approached it like an old-fashioned band. Um, and I remember seeing the reviews in the press that we got after that album, and I felt very validated because that's what they were writing about. They were like, Naked Famous have grown up. This is a more mature record. It's darker. It's more serious. And I remember we all started, like, wearing black, and, like, we just kind of, like, changed our image as well. And, uh, yes, so... so we had this real direction, but it was interesting. I what I didn't think at the time, and what I didn't have perspective on, was how what that would mean for our career, and what that would mean for what we could do, or how we were perceived like in the long run. So I think, you know, uh, I think I kind of expected that we were going to do the same things we did on the first record with the second record. We didn't though. We did a few things the same, but not everything. I don't know. It was just it's hard to explain, um, but. Now I feel like I have much more perspective and I'm able to temper my expectations about what this, what music is going to do for us or who it's going to reach and how that's going to translate to what we have to do, you know, um, as, as, as a band. And also I think I recognize now how much of, of those very, very insular goals you have as a musician and as a creative are they're often just your own views of the world, you know, and that people view you very differently and have a very different impression of what, you, what you're about. So it's good to have them because they create you a path, but at some point I think it's helpful to let go of the idea that you are gonna control how you're seen or how you're viewed. Do you even care at this point if you don't have huge radio singles on an album? Yes and no. Um, to be you know honest i think there's this sentiment that i've always struggled with when you hear musicians talk about you know just doing it for yourself if you were just doing it for yourself you wouldn't be on a label you wouldn't have a manager you wouldn't be selling merch <laughs> you'd just be doing it in your bedroom and playing your music to no one so you know if we're being honest anyone participating in you know the music business and the music industry is doing it because they really like exploiting their art in order to make a living and and live as an artist so i think for us that's the bar it's living as an artist being able to do this as a job because that's you know i don't want two houses i don't i just want to be able to buy my groceries go to the dentist pay the bills and there's these really interesting studies on this. I don't know if you know about this, but apparently, you know, money doesn't make you happy. Money actually does make you happy up until a point. Right. They've done brilliant studies on it where it's like, I think it's over $75,000 per year or something like that. Anything over that doesn't make you happy. Yeah, like living comfortably. You want to be able to live comfortably. So that's where that radio thing comes in. Like, it's this old-fashioned platform where you can create a very sustainable... Uh, amount of revenue and, and keep your business alive and 
But, you know, the one thing that is happening now, especially in the States, it, you know, the radio is struggling. Hell, it, everyone's struggling. Everybody's struggling, but radio's, you know, struggling. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old medium. Um, well, things indie, like this. In, indie Everyone. rock, quote unquote indie rock, isn't a, as a big of a commercial force as it was 10 years ago. You guys came up in the era of bands like Vampire Weekend and Passion Pit bands that could get really big singles on the radio and it's just not that way anymore it's not that way anymore and and uh yeah so the the, the medium is struggling and changing it's terrestrial media and you know um the dsps are now where a lot of our attention is focused and even the radio stations are focused on the dsps as well they want to see how well you're streaming before they play you so so look i i think that we would i we would love commercial success because it means we just keep keep we get to keep doing what we're doing but we're not able to just be a commercially successful band we just can't do it like we're not a we can't go we tried <laughs> we've tried to go into the studio and like write a hit we shit at it we're useless we can't do that we, we're not able to just generate songs that masses of people are going to like you know sing along to we just we can only make music that we think is true and honest and Authent authentic, authentic to who we are as artists. Yeah, and we can't we can't do catchy buzzwords and corny things. Like it just doesn't come naturally to us. If we've done it in a song, it's because we it felt right for us. But it, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because I don't think many art. I, I I'll be honest, I don't think many artists speak very honestly about this stuff. And I know I know for a fact that they all talk about it behind closed doors and they think about it and they worry about it and they do deals and they all have lawyers. Everyone is thinking about the industry and the business side of it behind closed doors all the time. What's nice about 2020 is that some of this stuff is starting to creep out into the public and people are starting to be more transparent about it and, and starting to talk about it. But it's a huge concern and motivation and incentive. Well, yeah. I think you guys have really carved out a great niche. You have your hits and then you have the music that's quality, that's made on your terms. And the new album sounds great and I'm excited for the, what the future holds for you guys. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for, for joining me here on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Jordan. It was honestly really fun. It's Real with Jordan Edwards is presented by Pop Dust. Go to popdust.com for the latest in pop culture, music, and entertainment. And you can find my photography and video work at jordanedwardsstudio.com or on Instagram at jordanedwardsstudio.com.